Hey guys, welcome to season three of the Drafty Moms podcast. I'm your host, Lynn Nitcher. Now, I normally like things consistent, but I'm so ready for new things and experiences. This last year has been one that we would like to all forget for a lot of reasons. But on the other hand, God has showed up over and over and taught me so much about myself, His purpose, and what He has for me. So that's my challenge to you. What do you want to take away from your time spent reflecting? Maybe God has given you a new insight. I hope these episodes are inspiring, informative, and hopeful, always showing God's grace, goodness, and that He's faithfully walking with us day by day. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you're here. Here we go. Hey guys, happy Wednesday and welcome to the Drive Through Moms podcast. I'm your host, Lynn Nitcher. So as we're gearing up for another school year, I'm super excited to have on uh, and introduce a couple of crazy smart women that I spent a whole lot of time with um, the last year and a half or so at work. So today I have the executive director, co-owner, and my boss of Diagnostic Learning, Miss Lori Peterson. Hello. And Dr. Abby Weinstein. Thanks for having us, Lynn. Yeah. Dr. Abby Weinstein, our director of assessment. Hey, guys, I'm so glad you guys are here. Hi. Thanks for having us. We're excited to share all of all of what we know, even though you have quite a bit of knowledge yourself now. (laughs) I don't know. I've learned a lot from (laughs) y'all the last two years. But okay, I'm going to give our listeners a little bit of background on what uh, where you guys come from. And then you guys just correct me if you're wrong. So, Lori. You have um, your bachelor's in special education as well as your master's with an emphasis in assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, you were and still are an educational diagnostician. You have a second master's degree in professional counseling. You were a classroom teacher, a diag, and then started diagnostic learning service just to kind of help uh, families outside of the schools in the same capacity. And what you've been doing is like, what, 16, 17 years? Yeah, it's going to be 17 years this fall. So how many total years then? Since you've been in schools? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. So (laughs) I actually did part-time schools, part-time this when I was getting it rolling. So it's probably been more like 13, 14 years since I was really in the schools at all. Um, But I started this kind of on the side about 17 years ago, and then it's just kind of grown from there. What made you decide to start working in SPED in schools or get your degree in special education? Because that's a hard that's a hard job. And a lot of people kind of maybe shy away from that. So how did you get interested in that? You know, I am a rare story, especially if you really know me and how much I like variety and how many times I changed my mind in one day. But when I was in high school, I became interested in child psychology and I thought I wanted to get into child psychology, which I kind of do. That's kind of what I'm doing now. But I got into a class at school that allowed me to go visit different campuses. And I actually worked in the special ed classroom with the teacher in high school. I rotated through four different settings and I fell in love with it. And I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. And that's all I had. I mean, that was, I can't believe I never, ever changed course, but I stuck yeah. with it. Yeah. Cause like you said, that's rare. Not a lot of people know, especially in high school, what you want to no. do when you grow up. I mean, I'm 54. I'm still not sure I know what I want to, <laughs> <laughs> what I want to do. So what, where in there did you decide to start your own business and start diagnostic learning, doing that independently of what you were doing in the school district? So once I, once I became a diagnostician, I loved working with the kids, but I always wanted to know, like, I wanted to get inside their heads and like crack them open and say, why is this hard for you? Why don't you understand this? What about this gives you a learning disability? So that's when I pursued my diagnostician certification. But then I felt like in the district, in the school districts, they do the very best that they can. But I felt in so many, at so many points during my career there, my hands were tied. 
And there were certain things I couldn't tell the parents or certain things I wasn't allowed to talk about or share. And I was only allowed to follow, you know, these rules and diagnose these things. And I felt like there was so much more information these parents needed and, and so many other ways to look at a student besides just this one way. And so I felt like I had more to offer than what the schools were allowing me to give. And so at the time, my dad had his own marketing company. He was an entrepreneur. So he was really encouraging and helped me kind of branch out and get started, which was awesome. And I was very blessed to have that opportunity. Um, and I was in a great district that let me take my schedule down to, you know, three days a week. Um, and then I could work on this two days a week, which not many districts will let you do. Right, right. So you've been, is this our 17th year with diagnostic learning? Yes. yes. I say our, it's not my hour. Oh. Um <laughs> I started it right before my son, right after my son was born um, and he'll be 17 in September. So it's like October, November timeframe. Okay. All right. All right. So Abby, yes. you have been doing this, what, 22-ish years? So you started out, you have your, um, as a, you were a home therapist, a teacher, have your um, ABA and your applied behavior analyst and have been an educational diagnostician for what, 16 years? Yes, ma'am. And then yeah. you have a bachelor's in human development, a master's in special ed, um, your diagnostician certification, and then you just couldn't handle not going to school <laughs> all the way and have your PhD um, in special education. What made you decide to keep going and get your PhD? That's a lot of school. It is a lot of school. And especially for someone, I was not the perfect student when I was in primary school and secondary school. I was not a really good student and even struggled in the beginning of my bachelor's degree. But I, I really developed a love of learning and just loved being in the classroom and engaging in intellectual conversations and learning more. And once I became a diagnostician, um, I worked with a lot of kids that struggled and I was determined to figure out more about their struggles, kind of like Lori said, get inside their heads and learn more about their particular struggles, why they might be struggling, where the learning disabilities come from. And I wanted to learn more about special education in as on the whole so that I could help reach more families and really make differences in the lives of, of all the children and families I was working with. So when I finished my master's degree, I took a few years off working and I just inside of me felt like I wanted to pursue that terminal degree and learn as much as I possibly could. So I decided to go back and Listen and and take on that that PhD program. And once I started, it was just a goal inside of me that I was determined to finish, no matter how hard it was, even while I was working. So it just was kind of an, an a, a really a goal that I was passionate about, and and I reached it. And so I feel very good about that, and it was rewarding, and and it gives me a lot of knowledge and skills that I can impart to families and and those that I work with. Well, I would agree, at least from the outside, what I get to see and hear every day with you talking to parents, um, it is a huge thing. And you're, you're both of your wealth of knowledge and ability to be able to share what you've done. You can tell that you love what you do. You can tell that you love helping families figure out what their underlying issue is, that they have no idea what's going on. So I have to say most of the time I feel like a fish out of water at work with a French degree, um, <laughs> but I have learned so much from y'all the last couple of years. So thank you so much for being on and just sharing a little bit. Um, 
So before we tackle some of the common questions and kind of get into the 411 of learning disabilities, Lori, why don't you explain a little bit about what exactly a diagnostician is and does? So a diagnostician is um, unique to the state of Texas. There are maybe like seven or eight other states that have the title of diagnostician, but basically we administer standardized tests. We um, interpret those results and can diagnose learning disabilities. So we look at a student's um, ability level, how they process information. We do that through an IQ test. I don't like to talk about IQ very often because people get hung up on that. So what we talk about really is what their ability is and how they process information through different channels and then where they fall academically, where they are with reading, writing, math, you know, language skills, um, how they how they are able to perform in the classroom in those areas. And is there a disconnect somewhere? Um, we also look a lot at um, ADHD and attention and focus. Um, and is that impacting learning in any way? Um, so it really, it looks at all kind of how a student, if you're sitting in classroom, how you're taking in information, how you're processing it, and then how you're showing what you know. Right. Okay. So yeah, we get tons of calls, y'all know every day from moms, grandmas, dads, friends, aunts, uncles that are trying to get information on how to help somebody that they love that they think might have a learning disability. And especially over the last year and a half, we've heard a lot from parents, um, that have maybe seen more firsthand over the last year with their kids, mm-hmm. uh, you know, them kind of serving as their teacher in a social distance learning home distance learning setting. Um, and so I think for, from my perspective, because uh, I've always had such a huge heart for moms um, and we get so many of these wide range questions um, I just really felt like this information would be super vital and could help a lot of people um, and the moms that listen. So, Abby, I'm going to start with you. So if you're a parent and you see a student or you um, are a teacher or a parent and you have a student that you've seen some sort of concerns in this way, why do you think being uh, assessed early is important? Well, I think early you know, research has shown that early intervention is crucial. And the sooner that you can intervene on struggles, academic struggles, social, emotional struggles, the better the the individual is going to fare in the long run. And if you do have gaps in any of your foundational skills or learning gaps in any academic area, unfortunately, the gap tends to grow bigger and bigger without the appropriate interventions and supports. And then it can also cause a lot of difficulties with um, self-esteem and not wanting to go to school and your to change your, your love of learning and interfere with some behavior and social functioning. So I think it's crucial to figure out what is going on early on, you know, even as young as five, six years old, if uh, a kiddo is struggling academically, socially, behaviorally, emotionally, it is important to really tease out what might be going on. What are their strengths? What are their weaknesses? And doing a formal assessment can help you determine what exactly is going on. Is there a a possible learning disability? Is there a developmental delay, a speech delay? Is there an attention deficit disorder that might be causing some of the behavioral and social difficulties? And really the early intervention will help 
deter a lot of those um, negative behaviors that develop and can help, you know, research has shown that if you get early intervention in reading, that you'll be on grade level by the time you're, you know, in like ninth or 10th grade. So even if you're at risk for reading difficulties or reading disabilities, if you get that early intervention and you are taught with the appropriate types of instruction and support and curriculum, that you can end up closing those gaps and doing okay and and reaching those standards or grade level expectations. So then how young is too young? Because we know we've had people that call sometimes with kids Mm -hmm. in preschool or they're about to start kindergarten and they're saying, my kid's having trouble with reading or with with their numbers or letters or they're getting things backwards. So what's kind of the standard for when you really should be concerned I think it depends on the concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and I think we take each of those calls kind of independently and we don't, there's not like a blanket statement I could say, because, you know, obviously there has to be some, um, we always say there has to be some kind of acad- academic knowledge in their bucket. There has to be something that they're behind on. And so usually age up through age three, four, it's really hard to say that they're behind on learning because, well, they're not really expected to have learned much yet. But once you get into that kind of pre-K kindergarten window, well, now we are expecting kids to recognize letters and to recognize numbers, be able to maybe say their ABCs or count to 10. And so if you've been doing that and your child is not is not getting it or they're halfway through kindergarten and they still don't recognize their letters, well, that's not typical. And so we do look at things like, well, are they, you know, are they a young kindergartner or where how are they developed in some of their other areas to determine if this is unusual for them or if it's typical for them. So I think you have to look at the big picture. But, you know, we like to say after you've had a semester of kindergarten under your belt, now we can tell if you're behind. Mm -hmm. But before that, it's really hard to tell because, you know, we have parents of incoming kindergartners that think their kindergarten, their kiddos should be reading. But they're not. (laughs) They shouldn't Mm -hmm. be. Right, right. (laughs) And, And even though you may have a friend whose kindergartner is reading, I don't know that they're really, really reading They might have a lot of words memorized. Mm -hmm. They might be smart enough to assign words to the pictures kinds of things. But have they really understood the basics of reading and phonics? And so developmentally, their brain isn't ready for some of that stuff yet. So by following kind of the curriculum of a kindergarten um, class, by second semester of kindergarten, there are certain things that should be happening. And if your child isn't doing those things, then it might be time to to look into some testing. Because again, like Abby said, the earlier we test the earlier we can put some things in place, the less of an issue this is going to be later on. Right. So when it comes to like when you test or you um, have somebody come in for an assessment, what what does the assessment look like? I mean, is that something that people have to typically have? I mean, I know the answer to some of these, but so is it something <laughs> that people have to to do again? Like say they come in for an assessment. So what do we look for? And then like how long are those assessments good for? Is it something they have to repeat? You know, I think that... Um, The assessment itself, it's very interactive. I think when people think about testing, they think that the kids are going to come in and like take an SAT or take, you know, the star test, some kind of bubble Mm -hmm. test. It's very interactive. We sit down with the kids or one of the diagnosticians sits down. We're working back and forth. It's asking questions. It's showing pictures. It's we use the iPads to show things and have them read things from the iPad. They read to us. They do math problems. It's all very interactive. Um, And really, once we make a diagnosis for most kids, it will most of these diagnoses don't go away. We may learn how to manage them better, but they're, they don't go away. You don't cure them. You just learn how to, to 
live with them, right? You learn how to accommodate them. Exactly. And you might be able to improve some of the skills to where it's not as big of a deal anymore. But as far as how long the testing lasts, it depends on the age. Testing can last um, for 10 years if you're in kindergarten. (laughs) The only time you really need to get it redone is when you're getting ready for high school, um, for standardized testing in high school, like the SAT or ACT, or when you go to college. That's when they're going to want to see new testing because you're going to be asking for things like extra time on your SAT or a quiet room to work in for your ACT. And they're going to want to see current proof of that disability and how it's impacting a student academically before they're going to grant that to you. Same with college. You may want to go to college. You may never have needed any support, but you get to college and you're like, whoa, I'm going to need extra time on these tests. They're going to want to see current documentation of the learning disability to to be able to to grant that. Um, Otherwise, unless your school requires it, there's really no need to redo the testing until you get to that point. Abby, would you agree? Yeah, I would agree. There's no need to do the testing to redo it um, unless you've had, you know, a lot of progress you're seeing or there's been a significant intervention program. If you have a child that's been diagnosed with dyslexia and they go through a dyslexia therapy program, um, dyslexia doesn't go away. However, you might want to, you know, four or five years later, reevaluate that student just to see how their skills have evolved and and where those gaps have closed or or become smaller. But it is not essential to redo that evaluation. Now, it, it changes if you have a student that is in special education and receiving services under the special education umbrella. By law, they're required to reevaluate the students every three years. So that is a you know a little difference in that in those cases, then the students are going to be retested, reevaluated every three years. And those evaluations can be all formal new testing. And then sometimes they'll carry over some of the previous testing. Maybe they won't redo the intellectual testing, but they'll just redo the academic achievement testing or some behavioral surveys. So, but for most disabilities, most learning disabilities, it is not necessary to redo the uh, testing often until Lori said, like Lori said, when you're about to graduate high school and go off to college. Right. Or so that was one future. thing too that I wanted to to talk about and camp out a little bit on on the college transition from high school. And one thing I love about when you guys do follow ups with families is, you know, where you walk through the results of the evaluation is bringing in those kiddos that are older um, that can understand and. Uh, Lori, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, um, advocating for yourself. Um, I used to have a principal that, um, even at the, it was a title one preschool and she was very much about, um, teaching our littles how to say, you know what? I don't like it when you do that, or Mm -hmm. I need this from you and to really verbalize what, um, they needed, what they didn't like, what was hurting, you know, with their friends, with their teachers, whatever, just to help empower them to be able to be okay with saying, this is what I need. Um, so I know it changes for kids where you've had, um, and I mean, now as a mom with three kids and, you know, you see parents coming in all the time, sometimes you get a little overzealous maybe and you want to do things for your kids. Right. Um, but talk about a little bit that transition from high school to college and how important it is in terms of navigating if you are receiving accommodations at that level. Right. So if you if you have a child with a learning disability and you're in that late middle school to high school years, that's the time that they should start being involved with their 504 meetings. Um, or their special ed meetings, because now they need to start understanding 
they need to understand their learning disability or their learning difference, first of all, and they need to understand how it impacts them and how it doesn't mean that they're not smart, but that they're smart, but learn differently. And then they need to understand why those accommodations are important. Because when you go to college, mom and dad can't go. It's just that student. And when you get to that college setting and you set up an accommodation plan, no one's going to chase your student down to remind them that their test is waiting for them in the testing center. If they don't show up at the testing center, nobody's going to care. And so they need to understand why that's important so that they will then remember and be okay reminding the professor, oh yeah, don't forget my test goes to the testing center or don't forget I get a copy of those notes, you know, every class period. So we really make sure when we do those follow-up appointments with the high school kids and college kids, we really, the parents are there, but we're really talking to that student because we want them to understand exactly where their strengths and weaknesses are and how important it is to start building those relationships with your teachers and understanding how important those accommodations are are to them so that they are not afraid or embarrassed um, to ask for them because so many kids are embarrassed. They don't want to be pointed out. They don't want to look different. But once they realize how much help it really is and how beneficial it is, they don't care. Right. Like, I don't care what anyone else right. thinks. I'm getting my extra time, you know, because I know it'll right. give me an A. Well, which is so important because, um, you know, we do worry sometimes about what other people think. And I remember even from a, a physical aspect, um, one of my kiddos was diagnosed with asthma early on. And I remember an adult telling me, oh, my gosh, don't tell the school you don't want them to label them. They'll never be able. To. And this was asthma. I'm like, right. no, my child needs to be able to breathe. Um, right. You know, so I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to tell the people that are around her because they need to know. Um, so, you know, being able to say, yes, I have accommodations for these so that I can get the help I need and being accustomed to um, step up and, um, you know, step up and take charge for themselves. Is, I think uh-huh. huge. Um, I, think, I think it's also important for kids to know why certain things are challenging for them and why some things are more difficult for them than it is for their peers or for a sibling. So it's just another reason that it's important for them to understand what their learning disability is and how it affects them and what can help. What are the different accommodations and supports that can help them and level the playing field? And I think we get a lot of parents here that aren't that want to explain to their student with a new diagnosis that they have ADHD or a learning disability. And I get often asked, you know, what's the best way to explain it to my child? And I think it is great when I hear parents that they want their kid to know that they do have a learning disability and you don't have to call it disability because that word, you know, sometimes does have a negative connotation or it's scary. Sure. But you can always teach them about how they learn differently and, and that their brain is just wired differently. But these are the types of supports and accommodations that can help you. And then again, that leads to being able to advocate for their own needs by saying, this is something that helps me. I need this and I need to ask for it. So even at the younger ages in elementary school, I think it is important for the kids to understand why certain things are challenging for them. So it's important to let them know that you are smart. You're very bright and very capable. You just have to work a little bit harder in some areas because of X, Y, Z. 
Right. And having the knowledge of like, I, this is my situation. It doesn't have to stay this way there. I can empower myself with the knowledge I have to make some choices and use that knowledge, turn it into wisdom of what mm-hmm. I can do to have improvements or um, create skills. One of the things I know that, um, you know, a lot of parents have become teachers of sort, like I said, uh, over the last year and a half with their kids at home. Um and we've had a lot of parents call that said they've noticed things that they never have seen before. And a lot uh, of what we've heard has been um, a lot about ADHD. So I don't care. One of y'all wants to talk about ADHD a little bit, but I went back and was looking at our data numbers, which is super raw. I haven't really cleaned them up too much from last year, but just looking at the number of uh, percentage number. Um, of the kiddos that we tested over the last year um, was about 80, uh, 60%. Wow. Was 60% was uh, ADHD of some sort. Some of them had ADHD plus dyslexia or something else, but about 60%, whereas we had about 21% dyslexia. So we'll get to dyslexia in a minute, but um, hmm. I know there's a little bit of confusion. Even some people still call it ADD versus ADHD. So one of y'all want to take the ADD, ADHD question? Go for so, it, Lori. Yeah. So that doesn't surprise me because I do think with the pandemic, most parents, you know, they might have heard some complaints from the school or from the teacher along the way. But until they're actually watching their child struggle to to stay focused during online learning, then it really hit home. Right. Um, And I think I think prior to the pandemic, you know, at home, there's not I mean, for the most part, there's not a lot of structure. No one's making their child sit at a desk for a long time or making them sit and do a boring task for a long time. Kids can kind of come and go for the most part as they please at home. That's their comfortable place. So those inattentive behaviors aren't as obvious a lot of times until you make them sit and do something that's more structured and maybe a little bit more boring. Right. <laughs> but we do right. see a ton of ADD. So um, over the years, ADD and ADHD have morphed into one. It is now ADHD based on the latest um, diagnosis manual. Um uh, we call it ADHD, and it's either primarily inattentive, meaning you don't have any of the hyperactivity, you're just a daydreamer, you have trouble staying focused, or ADHD, primarily hyperactive impulsive, meaning you're one of those kids that has a hard time sitting still, or you have a little bit of both. And we can diagnose it as early as we try to start, again, around age six. Um, the symptoms need to be present usually prior to age six to make a real you know, solid diagnosis. So we feel like after age six is a good time to start. And then we, we see um, individuals all the way up through adulthood, but it's just that inability to, um, to focus and to sit still and to manage your impulses. And then we pull in all of those executive functioning skills like organization and time management. Um, one thing we do hear a lot of parents say, though, is that how can my child be inattentive when they can sit on their video games mm-hmm. all day long? Right. And I think it's important to understand that it's not really a deficit of attention as much as an inability to regulate your attention mm-hmm. and know where you um, are putting your attention. And so when you're doing something you enjoy, you're getting stimulation from that. And that stimulation helps you stay focused. It's the boring stuff that doesn't stimulate us. And I say us because Abby and I both just have just did mm-hmm. a big podcast about our own ADHD struggles. Um that it's 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 a very it's a lot harder for somebody with ADHD to to stick with something that's boring or lot not stimulating than it is someone who they who is neurotypical as they call non ADHD people. So I think we get that a lot. That's a very um, they just assume that because they can focus on video games or whatever activity they love, that doesn't mean they, they should don't. be able to focus somewhere else too. Right, and right. I, I wish that were the case, but it's just not. Abby, what do you have to add? 
I, I mean, I agree with everything you've said. And I've just, I, I do think that it's important to understand that they can focus when it's something that's interesting and meaningful or novel. And it is much harder to sustain that focus and attention and concentration when it's something boring or uninteresting. So it's important to look at how they perform on academic tasks or things that are not as interesting to them and see if they you know, can sustain their focus and attention or do they struggle with organization and getting tasks completed in the, in the allotted time? Do they struggle with um, doing the assignment, but then never getting it turned in because it's somewhere hidden down in their backpack? Or can they not sit still and listen during instruction? And that's causing some, some gaps and difficulties with learning and, and academic skills. So there, there are just so many different aspects to look at carefully. And that's why I like that when families do come in with concerns about their child's learning, we do always look at attention and activity level and concentration and those executive functioning skills for self-management. Even if they say, my child can't comprehend anything they read, it's not automatically a learning disability in reading comprehension. It could be related to attention. It could be related to many other things as well. But that's one reason that I, I do make I love that we make sure to do a very comprehensive assessment and we're looking at the whole child and all of their different skills and abilities under different settings, time constraints versus no time constraints, structured activities versus how they do in home. I think too, the exact opposite, when someone comes in with attention concerns, we don't just focus, (laughs) no pun intended, Mm -hmm. on the attention. (laughs) We look at the whole child because there's lots of reasons why kids can't pay attention. If I don't understand what's going on, I'm going to check out or if uh-huh. I, if it's visually overwhelming to me or, I mean, there's lots of reasons. So we want to make sure that just because they're inattentive, we're not just going to check that box. We want to figure out why, why right. are they inattentive? Right. And I love, like I said, with the, the follow-ups that you guys do, that parents don't just get an assessment, that they also get recommendations. And I know a lot of times when it comes specifically to the ADHD conversation, you guys have books that you recommend that we keep in the lobby. I know you guys have a couple of favorites. Um, so what are a couple of good favorite books? And we can put them in the show notes too. Okay. Well, my favorite ADHD is Driven to Distraction. That was like my aha moment when I read that book and I gave it to my parents to read. Like, to me, it just, it explains ADHD beautifully. So Driven to Distraction is my ADHD go-to. Mm-hmm. Abby, what about you? Um, I also, I love Driven to Distraction. I also love a book called Smart But Scattered oh. because it also helps explain ADHD in an easy to understand way. And it gives really good strategies and systems that can be put in place for helping to not be so scattered, to helping with those executive functioning skills of planning and organizing and executing tasks and self-regulating and managing emotions and those types of things. It's a really good book. Um, There's also that ADHD 2.0 which we have here in the office. And I haven't personally read it, but I've heard great things about it. And I've read a lot of reviews on it. And it seems to be a really great book that helps you to understand ADHD. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of because I see it from my desk (laughs) in the lobby. Yes, that's a good one. That's kind of a follow-up to Driven to Distraction. Okay. It is also, there are a million videos available on YouTube that are very informative regarding ADHD. And one that Lori and 
I both love and we recommend to a lot of families to watch is if you go onto YouTube and search how to ADHD. And this woman has created a ton of videos that are very engaging. They're easy to understand. They're fun. They're, they're informative, but it's how to ADHD. And then she has many different types of videos all about ADHD that are very informative. And even some of them are appropriate for kids to watch. Okay. They're very, they're very engaging. I I would recommend them for like middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I'll make sure and add those to the show notes um, when we get there. Do you, um, so say you've got a kiddo that you maybe were diagnosed right before COVID and then, you know, the world shut down and schools are behind and everybody's been in and out and it's kind of been crazy. And now you're going back to school um, this fall with maybe a new diagnosis or, you know, just wanting to get back in the groove of things. What would you guys maybe Mm -hmm. suggest to parents here at the beginning of the school year and maybe explain, I don't know if, if some of them are new, then maybe they have haven't been through an ARD process or a 504 meeting, just what are some good parent tips as we kind of gear back up to help your kiddo? Abby, I'll let you take this one. Okay. I think first and foremost, you want to share any information and documentation of a learning disability or ADHD with your school. You want to make sure that they know as soon as possible that your child has been identified with a learning disability. And I would share that report that you got that has the diagnosis, that has the implications and recommendations, and a very good person to start with if you're not sure who to contact at the school would be the school counselor. The school counselor oftentimes oversees making sure students get what they need. They are oftentimes the Section 504 coordinator or they work closely with the Section 504 coordinator. Even if you think that your child has a disability and you think they might need special education services, it's always a good place to start with the school counselor if you don't know the exact contact person. So I would email them, share a copy of the report, and let them know a little bit more about your child. Just open that communication, not just the hard data from the evaluation report, but share about what your child's strengths are, their weaknesses, how the types of settings they perform best in, the type of adult they work best with, you know, what who might be the, the best type of teacher for them. And then also once you find out who their teacher is for the school year or teachers, I think it's really a good idea to reach out to those teachers and say, It opens the line of communication. It shows that you want to have good communication between home and school and also share with them that information that, you know, little Johnny's been diagnosed with dyslexia or Abby has ADHD and she's going to have an accommodation plan in place and let the teachers know what her needs are. But usually for Section 504, they'll organize a meeting that will include you, the teachers, an administrator, a counselor, and together as the key stakeholders in your child's in the child's education, together you guys will develop what that individual accommodation plan looks like. I think take the recommendations from the evaluation report, take what you know about your child, take the information that the teacher shares and together create that individual accommodation plan for the student. Yeah, because communication is so important and knowing the right person to talk to um, and getting in connection with them and kind of, I mean, I remember my first um, 
training that I went to when I was at a Title I preschool and I it was a SPED training and I had no idea. I had never had any exposure to SPED at all. Um, and just the acronyms alone, I was so <laughs> overwhelmed. I yep. got a handout from the district's behavior specialist. And I think it was like six pages front and back of just acronyms. So it can be super overwhelming um, if you've yep. never been in it yet to an IEP and a BIP and, you know, all this right. that you're like, mm-hmm. I don't even know what this is. So yes. that's well, good, Abby. And I yes. think, too, what I wanted to just really quickly interject is that sometimes just understanding the difference between 504 and special education, right. which could be a whole podcast on its own. Right. But right. In, in a nutshell, 504 allows for accommodations. It, you can change the way things are taught or the way information is presented. So, you know, getting directions read orally or having more time to finish a test. But the curriculum is not touched. The student is still required to do all the same, learn all the same things, do all the same tasks. They just can have some accommodations in the way that it's done. Mm-hmm. Special education offers modifications to the curriculum, meaning that if the school, if the if the regular class is t- is learning these ten things, the special ed student may only have to be required to learn these five or six. So they actually change the curriculum demands, and so. I think that's a humongous difference mm-hmm. to understand. And a lot of parents are confused under which chi- which program their child is in mm-hmm. because the school just rolls you in and puts you in that meeting and throws all those acronyms at you and and your head spins and you leave and think, I'm not really sure what just happened. Right. So I think it's important to be able to differentiate between the two and understand what's best for your child. Most students can be served under 504, mm-hmm. but then there are some that need that extra support that you can only get through special education. Right. That's okay. Right. So that makes sense to me because I was even super fuzzy on that. I'm So give me correct me if I'm wrong. So when we were, I was working in a SPED class with autistic kiddos and they had um, inclusion time. So they weren't in a regular gen ed class. They were in a SPED class. So their curriculum was changed in terms of they only were like, okay, my plan is written to where I only go and in part of a, a gen ed class for five minutes versus those gen ed kids would have been in there all day. So that's exactly. like a SPED modification. Exactly. The curriculum is modified versus um, a 504 that would be modification is to how you receive the same instruction everybody else gets. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It, it okay. can be modified. It's not always modified. Right. However, um, there is a lo- there's a lot more intensive services that are available to a student through special education. Right. So depending on their needs, they might need instruction in a very small class small group setting with a very low staff to student ratio where they are taught in a very simplistic, differentiated way with simple language where the, the curriculum is, you know, slowed down and the rigor is reduced, but they also might have the modified curriculum where they're only expected to master some individualized specific goals from that grade level curriculum. And then there's also services that are only available through special education, such as speech therapy or occupational therapy or social skills groups or um, music therapy, physical therapy. So there, it just depends on the child child's needs and, and what exactly they, they are, but there are a lot of services that are only offered through special education. Right, right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about dyslexia. Um, I know we have a lot of people call that have, I guess what you guys would say, have different misconceptions about what dyslexia actually is. So um, who wants to take the dyslexia 
conversation and just maybe give a little bit of information about maybe what are some common misconceptions about dyslexia and how maybe it differs with visual processing. So I'll, I'll, I'll Go jump ahead. on that. So dyslexia at its root is an inability to understand how the letters and sounds come together to make a word. Um, it's a language-based learning disability. Kids have difficulty decoding words, um, spelling or and we call it encoding, but spelling words, being able to separate a word into its individual sounds and understand how those sounds all or how those letters all have sounds and all those sounds and letters come together to make a word. The biggest misconception and the biggest myth that I feel like we probably bust every day mm-hmm. is that letter reversals, number reversals, that is not dyslexia. That I, we still have yet to find the root of that of that rumor. That miss. Yeah. But it's <laughs> but, but but sadly we perpetuate it. Like we keep it going because we'll often say, Oh, that's my dyslexia kicking in, you know, if mm-hmm. we say something backwards. But that's not really dyslexia. Right. Right. Dyslexia really is an inability to sound to, to sound out a word. And so we look a lot at phonics and phonological awareness when we're assessing for dyslexia. When we have kiddos that are reversing their letters and numbers, through the age of a, about well, really through the end of second grade, it's actually very developmentally appropriate. Mm-hmm. It's it's how the brain functions and it's learning and recognizing those reversals. And I think especially B and D and P and Q yep. and yep. five and nine. Yeah, which uh-huh. I think is good for moms to hear because even um, just through the years of uh, for my own kids and then hearing, I've heard that from teachers a lot through the years of like, oh, it'll even out by the time they're like in second mm-hmm. grade. Just give it some time um, just as they adjust and learn and are learning to read and to uh but that's something that I've heard a lot too. And I think can get confusing for parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt y'all. If you no, want, you're done. good. You're good. No, no, that's it. And, and so oftentimes when we have kids that are still reversing their letters and numbers past second grade, that's when we look at their visual processing. We look at how their what their handwriting is like. Is there something going on with the way their eyes and their brain are communicating? But dyslexia really is all about letters and sounds and phonics. And I think one of the things that I love, again, I'm just flattering y'all all over the place, but one oh, of the thanks. things that I love when I hear you guys talk to families and parents is just the importance of um, getting a diagnosis or the importance of learning about whatever their diagnosis is so that they can get help. Because like you said, a lot of these, they don't go away. It's something that you have, you know, through your life, but how do you manage it? How do you progress? How do you grow um, on the under other end of it and learn to be productive with whatever uh, your learning differences, your learning style. So um, I love that about how y'all work with people, but thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So we obviously we test, I don't know what the percentage, I'll have to go back and look. That'll be an interesting study. But to look at the percentage of, we do a lot of adults as well Mm -hmm. as um, kids in grade school or college or whatever. So if you're a, if you're an adult, is it ever too late to be tested or can't, are there such things as workplace accommodations? Mm -hmm. It's, It's never too late to be assessed for a learning disability. Um, There are many, many adults that we see that come in and say that they've struggled with reading their whole lives or they've struggled with attention and focus their whole lives or with organization and time management. And so it is never too late to be diagnosed. And even with dyslexia, you know, a, a 
a reading, a language-based disorder, as Lori talked about, there are adults that we have seen that we've been able to diagnose and identify the dyslexia. If they have the characteristics of dyslexia and they're struggling in all those different areas that Lori talked about, even it sometimes looks a little bit different in an adult, but they may be still struggling with reading and spelling and with carrying it over into writing and it's affecting their comprehension ability and their ability to read fluently. So we do um, assess adults and we diagnose adults with dyslexia and many different other learning disabilities as well as ADHD. And you are entitled to workplace accommodations. If you are any individual with what they what the law describes as a significant life impairment that significantly interferes with a major life function, such as concentration, reading, writing, working, accessing your environment, things like that, you are entitled to some accommodations to help you experience success and to be able to perform your job and your duties and meet the expectations that are required of you. So, um, don't be afraid to come for an assessment if you're an adult that you feel you've struggled in an area all your life, or even if you've just started struggling, if you were able to cope and manage for many, many years, and now because of the environment you're in or the expectations or your job responsibilities, you're struggling more, it is possible to you know, not be diagnosed with a, with a learning disability until a certain age in life or until adulthood, and you can still be entitled to those accommodations or supports for, you know, for example, some people with ADHD have a hard time avoiding distractions and filtering out distractions, or they need a lot of movement breaks. So they're, they're getting, you know, being able to wear noise canceling headphones at, at work or have frequent breaks where they can get up and move or work in have alternative seating arrangements. They can work standing up or work on a stress ball where they can bounce up and down. Um, there are adults with dyslexia that use software programs that read to them everything they have to read it orally, uh, text-to-speech software. So there's just a plethora of different accommodations depending on what your individual needs are that can be easily implemented in the workplace. I think, too, it's important to know that even as an adult, if you struggle in an area and you need some help and you want to improve those skills, there are programs out there for adults. So don't think that only kids can get help with some of these different mm -hmm. learning disabilities or different you know, academic struggles. There are programs that are specifically designed for adults. Good yeah. Point. And I was thinking about just from, I think a lot of times we're so apt to go to the doctor when we have an issue or we see something that is affecting our ability to function on a daily basis physically, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, I've had this pain in my shoulder forever because I'm 54 and I'm getting old and I, I need some help because it's affecting my daily life. We have a lot of adults that call that are like, you know what, I'm starting to have trouble at work because I, mm -hmm. I'm, I have something going on that I don't know what's going on and I really need it because my job is in jeopardy or I'm late to work or whatever. So I think sometimes, I don't know why, maybe we have the same stigma of a, of a kiddo in sped at school or something that we don't want, um, special treatment or we don't want to go mm -hmm. uh, the extra mile mm -hmm. and figure out something else is going on that isn't physical, but that's just as important. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Or they're afraid that they'll be looked at differently sure. by their employer. Sure, because everybody hates. Yeah, nobody mm-hmm. nobody likes that. Um, was there anything else that you guys would want to share with the parents? I'm gonna. I know there's so much we didn't cover, but you guys obviously have um, your own resources uh, for families. You have the Let's Talk Learning Disabilities podcast. Um, you do Facebook lives. Um, you know, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of groups on Facebook for different locations to get information that will talk about in a second, but is there anything else that you just wanted, you know, want to share real quick before we go? I think it's just my biggest thing is, you know, don't be embarrassed and don't be, um, and don't wait. If you, if you Uh have that mom gut, I put a lot of, um, I I, I give mom gut a lot of, a lot of credit because if you have that mom gut feeling that just something isn't right, you're probably right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say nine times out of 10, when moms come in, they're like, you know, the school says everything's fine. I just feel like there's something off. There usually is. So trust your mom gut. If you think that something isn't right, even if you just want to call and pick our brains, mm-hmm. Lynn will tell you, we love, we'll just talk. We'll talk to you on the phone. We'll answer your questions. <laughs> you don't have to come in for an assessment. If you just want to get some more information or find out if maybe you're on to something, we're happy to talk to you, but follow your mom gut. Abby, yes. you have anything to add to that? I agree. I agree with that. No, I think that's it. I think Lori's touched on that well. Well, I know that the, um, obviously we have a lot of ways that people can reach out through the website, Instagram, the podcast, Facebook, you know, we've got locations across Texas, but I wanted to say that one of the things that I loved when I was listening to, um, I guess it was the intro episode maybe, um, that really resonated me with me was something Lori said was that, um, the biggest thing in all of this to me is just hope. You know, we love our kids. We mm-hmm. want what's best for them or our family members. It may not just be our child. Um, and we want to get them help as best we can. And y'all are a great resource. But for people to know that there's hope, that if you have mm-hmm. something yeah. and something is going on, that you can figure out what it is, A, and B, get some recommendations in order to, um, you know, help make things easier and you to make progress, but teach your kids along the way um, how to advocate for themselves. So I, I love that aspect of just that there is hope in figuring uh-huh. something out, um, which is the goal, right? Because we obviously want to see our, our kids succeed and our family members succeed. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, thank you guys so much for being on. This was fun. I mean, I hear this stuff every day and I'm always like, oh, people need to know this stuff. It's yeah. so, it's so it good. Fun. It's well, so good. Well, thank you for having us and thank yes. you for including us. And we're so proud of you with all you've done with your podcast. This is awesome. You're doing oh, some really awesome. good stuff. Well, Drive thank you. Mom's crowd. Thank you for <laughs> listening to us today yeah, too. Thank you guys. And again, feel free to reach out to either one of us with you guys. If you have further questions or concerns or, or, or do want to pick our brain, we're happy to be available as a resource for you. Yeah. And I'll list all that stuff in the show notes. So thanks again, guys. Love y'all. Thanks for listening thank to you. the drive through moms podcast. And until next time, happy Wednesday. Hey, I told you guys they were good. I just felt like there was so much useful information for moms. And as we head back into a somewhat normal school year, our kids have been through so much this last 18 months. There's so much more information to be shared. We just couldn't squeeze it all in. Like what is dyscraphia, dyscalculia, visual processing and executive function. You can find out specific information on these topics and more on Lori and Abby's Let's Talk Learning Disabilities podcast their Facebook lives, Instagram page, website, and more. And of course, I'll include all these in the show notes. 
Just remember there's hope. And personally, I'm thankful to God above. He gave us intelligent people with a heart to help like these two. They spend their life sharing their knowledge and wisdom so we can learn and grow to manage our learning differences. As always, share Drive Through Moms with your friends. I'd love it if you left a great review. And until next time, thanks for listening. Happy Wednesday.